As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can choose from a variety of free ebooks. But now for today's show. On Friday the 19th of May, the evangelist, apologist and author Tim Keller died following a decline in his health after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2020. Christians around the world took to social media to express their gratitude for Tim and the impact of his work on their faith and ministries. I'm joined today by Colin Hansen, Editor-in-Chief of the Gospel Coalition and Executive Director of the Keller Centre for Cultural Apologetics. Colin recently wrote a book entitled Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. Colin, thank you so much for joining us again. We've talked about the sort of some of the influences on Tim Keller's life. We were looking at the book that you've written and some of the way that his theology was formed. But I'd love to focus in this episode on cultural apologetics. And obviously, you are quite passionate about this. Tim Keller was passionate about this. So if you wouldn't mind, I might just ask you a couple of quick questions about yourself, just to give a little bit of context to people, because obviously lots of people will know who Tim Keller is. But again, just in a tiny little nutshell, what was your experience, Colin, of God while you were growing up? So I grew up in a mainline Methodist home. And so I was definitely exposed to church. I was exposed to um, to Christianity, I had a sense of responsibility before God, of of moral truth. But I also remember for ways that I can't really understand or articulate, um, thinking that it was all false and that my generation was not as dumb as previous generations and that we would leave all of this behind. But I had a had a profound experience of grace and acceptance and love as a teenager at age 15 and really set me on the same trajectory that I've been on ever since then. So um, it was a it was a radical shift. And in, in many ways, I was pretty morose and confused. And I thought happy Christians were really obnoxious. Um, <laughs> but God was kind to, to open my eyes and and really, uh, well, just bottom line to, to save me at, at age 15 and really grateful for that. And obviously, I'm sure, you know, there's been some sort of key moments along the way for you, hasn't there? <laughs> well, no doubt about it. I mean, I, I developed a lot theologically in my in my college years, kind of set me on a specific kind of reformed uh, 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 
tradition there. And then I started working at Christianity Today magazine shortly after that because I'd studied history and journalism and, and got exposed early on to to Billy Graham's ministry. I got to meet Billy Graham and I got to work on a book about him. I've been thinking about that a lot lately that so far in my career bookended at the beginning with Billy Graham and then and then more recently with Tim Keller. But I can't think of any better place to be able to study. But uh, yeah, I mean, I went off to seminary, uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, and that was really formative. I got to stay with Kevin Van Hooser on cultural hermeneutics. And that was um, that was just an absolutely memorable experience. I've always loved the way kind of an interdisciplinary approach. Um, the way I tend to to come at things is a combination of of Bible and theology, sociology, literature, history. Uh, David Wells is one of my one of my heroes, a longtime professor at Gordon Conwell. The way he integrates these different disciplines together, you you could toss in journalism in there, but. Um, yeah, it's just been kind of a, a strange little uh, strange little career so far. <laughs> but I mean, in some ways, what an interesting way to sort of look at the way that culture has shifted, obviously with the sort of academic study of um, cultural hermeneutics and then some of the things that you would have inevitably seen as the editor of Christianity Today. So what are some of the ways that you've seen culture shift over the last 30 years, do you think? <laughs> Well, there, there's simply no doubt, and we, we talked about this as we launched the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, the way that in my upbringing, as well as Tim's ministry in Hopewell, Virginia, and I'm not saying this is the same around the rest of the West, including the UK, but certainly in the United States for much of the 1970s into 1980s, evangelism was often connecting together ideas that people already had in their heads, but couldn't quite uh, understand the implications of. So it's one reason why revivalism has been such an important movement, because it's not that people are unaware of the gospel, it's that they haven't had an experience of it. Uh, So for me, again, I knew most of these things, but I had not seen it lived out by people who were truly passionate about Jesus, especially my peers. And so, and Tim, he used to use a, um, a curriculum called Evangelism Explosion in the 1970s, very successful, brought many people to the Lord of basically saying, do you know where you'll go today if you die? And it's walking people ha- through how we're not, can't boast in our own works, but only in Christ's salvation to be saved. The difficulty now is that I don't think that's a particularly burning question for people. People do not seem preoccupied in the 21st century, they were, the way they were with Martin Luther in the 16th century about eternity and purgatory and all those things that occupied them and continue to loom large in the, in the Western mindset ever since. So that's the main difference that I see. There are still many pockets of the United States where what I'm saying is not, has not changed. But in Tim Keller's ministry, especially in New York City and places like that, we've seen a dramatic change in one or two generations. Well, and that's certainly the case here in the UK as well. I mean, I live in London, which is, you know, sort of mirrors almost entirely the, the, the you know, the dynamic of New York. Um, I'd be interested to see what you think of this. Um, this is an article from Daniel Silliman in Christianity Today. And I think it was a kind of looking back at Tim Keller's life. So it's written fairly recently. And he said, Killer, Keller was frequently accused, especially in later years, of cultural accommodation. He rejected cultural war antagonism and the own the libs approach to evangelism. And people accused him of putting too much emphasis on relevance 
and watering down or even betraying the truth of Christianity out of a misplaced desire for social acceptance. I mean, how would you respond to that? Do you think Tim Keller was guilty of cultural accommodation? I definitely don't. <laughs> I thought that might be your answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's fair, it's fair to assume. Um, in the United States, if you do not align your goals with an explicitly political partisan agenda, and it could be on either side, you will be accused of selling out. And it's and it's it's interesting to me that in the early 2000s and the mid 2000s, Tim Keller was accused of being too much about this world. Uh, the thought was his reformed theology, his views of vocation, of work, of mercy ministry, of justice were too focused on this world, just like the mistakes supposedly that Kuiper and Bavink and others had made. But now it's interesting that at his time of death, now he gets the opposite criticism that he doesn't that he didn't care enough about this world. But he was the same Tim Keller. It was the same Reformed theology. It was the same evangelistic thrust with a concern for justice and an avoidance of partisanship. It didn't matter if the partisanship was President Bush, with whom he was friends, or President Obama, with whom he was friends, or President Trump, who was from, of course, his same city. It, didn't matter. It was the same problem in each case. It's simply that partisanship in the United States has been ratcheted so much, so far up, not only because of social media, but also because of continued changes in our culture that that, that accusation has come. I think the, the only aspect that does have merit in that further conversation is that um, what what is the role of pastors today in speaking to social ills and what is the relationship of that to evangelism? If we would say we shouldn't address justice questions because that would distract people from evangelism, then that's definitely wrong. I don't think that's what Tim did, but I do think that's where some of the legitimate concern comes from of saying we have to be able to do both things at once, speak about significant problems in our culture could be anything from transgender to racism. I mean, anything like that. And also evangelize. We have to be able to do both. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. So what is it and, and where did it come from? What was the idea behind it? Yeah, the idea behind it is fairly simple. We live in a situation of, of unprecedented decline in the church across the West and a significant problem that we've never faced before which is that nobody has adapted an apologetic, a defense of the faith, an evangelistic program in a post-Christendom environment. And so, you know, for me in Birmingham, Alabama, the United States of America, that seems a little bit ludicrous to talk about. But the point of the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics is to bring pastors and church leaders like me into conversation with significant church leaders in Melbourne, Australia, in London, in Sydney, Australia, in all kinds of different places across the West where we can be collaborating to say, you know, we're not going to be able to just repeat things that Tim Keller did, but we can try to adapt some of his methodology and his awareness to our own day. Um, he's not the kind of person who would have told us, in fact, we got a chance to talk with him, has to be one of his last public conversations. He he helped to talk us through some of the things that we need to do 
And one of the things he recommended is we need to retrain pastors in continuing education to be how to be conversant with this post-Christendom, post-Enlightenment type setting. He did a lot to try to do that, but he even sensed that a lot was changing underneath his own feet right now. So his message to us was, don't go back to the 1990s and what I did. You're going to have to figure this out for yourself. The Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics is trying to figure that out for ourselves in this generation. We're inspired by Tim, but we can't take all of our cues from Tim. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures, connect with students from around the world, and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. Now, this may have just been me in the UK, but I know quite a few sort of people on my social media and things like that were all slightly balked at the idea that Tim Keller's name was in the title. I mean, I think in light of things like RZIM and things like that, I mean, was it important for you that Tim Keller's name was in the title? And and how would you respond to people that think that it's not a great idea? Oh, I I think Tim was the first person to say that it was not a great idea. <laughs> um, but I, I can I can pretty, I think, easily explain why it had to be that way. Let's imagine that I said, we're starting the new Center for Cultural Apologetics. And you'd say, what's cultural apologetics? And I'd say, well, it's like what Tim Keller does. <laughs> or even let's just say we'd called it the Center for public Christianity or something, you'd say, well, what are you guys trying to do? Well, we're trying to do cultural apologetics. What's cultural apologetics? It's what Tim Keller does. It's really a way of helping people to understand very quickly what we're trying to do and being able to say, oh, it's like what Tim Keller is doing, what did, but we're trying to do that in our generation. He's not in charge of it. He never was in charge of it, but it's the kind of work that we're doing that's that's the difference. Like we don't have any we don't have any family on the payroll. Um, Tim was not he was a board member of TGC uh, before he died at the time of his death. So in that sense, he was part of the overall group. But it it wasn't a family ministry in that way. And I think it's just it's just a simple way to be able to talk about it. And but I do appreciate especially people's concerns about that. And I hope that people are encouraged. Um by just the different testimonies people are giving to Tim's life. And there are some really clear contrasts to, to Robbie Zacharias and to others. And so um, I'm sensitive to the concern. I respect it. That's just why we went in a different direction. So I'm going to twist that question back on yourself because you asked, what is cultural apologetics? So how would you define that? What is cultural apologetics? And I suppose significantly, why is it important? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when we're talking about defending the faith, there's a lot of different directions that we can go here. We can, but usually when people think apologetics, they think rational arguments made by individuals. Um, but Tim's view is that that's overly adapted to the Enlightenment, 
And so the Keller Center's view of cultural apologetics is we have to get underneath. We've got to get underneath the assumptions of identity, of of the Enlightenment. And so he would say, and this is how we helped to, to form the center, he would have said, what we need today are not so much more writings about the resurrection and its historicity. Now, of course, he loved N.T. Wright's work on that. So he wasn't saying that we that we don't need it at all. He was just saying the particular demand of the moment is things more like Augustine's City of God. So he was a huge encourager of Christopher Watkins' work on biblical critical theory. He was saying we need more stuff like that that questions the assumptions of our civilization and helps people to see, like to, to question their questions, to not assume their assumptions. We've got to destabilize people's confidence that is unwarranted and even in some ways irrational, the way that morality has been detached from transcendence, for example. So that's what we mean by cultural apologetics is being able to speak to people's aspirations, um, their 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 the way people often want to belong before they believe, um, and with spe- specific sensitivity to an overall confusion in our culture across the West as to why we do anything that we do. Um, so it doesn't have to be narrowly focused in one particular aspect or another, but just a recognition that people's questions now are a little bit less about, is Christianity true? And more about, is Christianity good? Or even, is Christianity evil and responsible for so much of the horrible that things that we see? That's, to be brief here, that's Charles Taylor's view of the kind of succession narrative, um, the, the coming-of-age narrative of the West, that if we need to overcome Christianity to come into full fruition in this society, that's the kind of question that cultural apologetics is aimed at answering. Mm. So do you think some of those big questions, the objections, do you think a lot of those have changed over the years then? Yeah, I think I just mentioned that that basic one right there. Um, if you go back at least in in much of Western history, but I'll talk specifically here about the United States, there was a time in the early 20th century where people were asking the question of, you know, I don't like the miracles, like the virgin birth was really offensive to people. But they thought that Christian views on morality, especially sexuality, were really important. Well, really, that's reversed. Now, I just don't find many people, they, they, if you believe some outlandish things, that's fine, as long as it doesn't affect anything, as long as it doesn't affect them or affect anything else. Whereas their view, your views, our views on morality, to them are deeply offensive because they do affect society. And they've, they flip those around. So that's kind of a, a century-wide perspective on the, the way this, the questions of the miracles and the morals have flipped on us. Um, but it just I'm, I can't even quite anticipate what the next questions are going to be. But that's the basic situation we find ourselves in, is that we are a highly, highly moralistic age that simultaneously is trying to be relativistic. That's impossible to hold, but we don't quite know what the successor narrative of that is going to be in this um, kind of early post-Enlightenment period. Mm. Now, Colin, this, you know, you've touched on this already, but I do a lot of work with young people. And I guess one of the the things that I find is is 
they don't even really have the questions. They're just completely apathetic to the gospel. You know, it's yeah. your truth. This is my truth. How how would we respond and how would the, you know, the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics, how do we respond to people who are completely apathetic to the gospel? It's not as if they have objections. They literally don't care. <laughs> yeah. Well, I suppose in some ways they're they're apathetic to the gospel. But one of the things that we see across the West, I know this has been major in the UK, it certainly is the United States as well as an epidemic of loneliness. Um, there is a sense of, of rootlessness. I, I just go back to this. I say that for young people today, we are asking them from early ages to answer for themselves without any help from any authority figure, religious, political, familial, to say, what gender are you? Or is gender even a thing at all? What is a binary? What is a spectrum? What is psychology versus biology? Oh, and by the way, also, what do you believe about eternity? Oh, and what do you want to do with your life? Make sure you make a lot of money and you're really famous. But at the same time, you have to be devoted to justice and you can't be toxic and abusive in your leadership. Um, you know, where do you want to live? Because it's got to be really cool. You have to be fun to be able to say that you're from that place. But it's also got to be affordable, right? Because you're not going to make much money because you're going to be devoted to justice issues. Well, wait, but you actually have to have a lot of money because you're going to want a lifestyle that you saw on Instagram with vacationing all the time. This is not a great situation. <laughs> and I, I think young people are the first to be able to tell us that this is not a great situation. But this is what happens when your civilization gets unmoored from any kind of broader story. Is when you have all these values in the air, but they're not anchored to anything at all. And it's what happens when we when we try to separate from a God who knows us completely and loves us fully. So that's where I would start. I know there's apathy perhaps about the gospel, but I don't think there's apathy about the basic predicament that many young people find themselves in today. Mm, and I think this is so interesting. You've obviously touched on this. I've got a quote here from Ted Torno in Pop. I can never say that. Popologetics. Um, and Popologetics. Yes. That's the. Yeah. You say it way better. He says the job of apologetics is to build a bridge between hope and the non-Christian. And I think, as you say, you know, we're kind of in this um, epidemic of, of hopelessness. So, how do we do that? How do we build a bridge between hope and non-Christians? Do you think, Colin? Well, I, I think it's in. So much of how people think today is tribalistic. Here's what I mean by this. The internet poses a basic epistemological challenge. There's too much information. How can you know what's true? So we tend to outsource our thinking to tribes. And then we're signaled with this is good or this is bad. And mostly you're in your tribe because of who you hate, not who you love, but by who you hate in there. This is a very hopeless situation. Seeing Christians love people who are not like them, to live for another world, which allows them, like Lewis said, to love this world the most at the same time, to be accepting of different kinds of people, including people who are their ideological enemies, to forgive one another, to be united across these boundaries. That's something that is rare. In our world, that's an opportunity for the gospel to display that hope in how we love our enemies, we love our neighbors, and we love one another. I think people are crying out to see that in this age. And it's a great opportunity, I think, for the church. 
Well, as we end this episode, I mean, do you think there's any advice that Tim Keller would give to those who are engaging in cultural apologetics? If he could kind of give some top tips for people who are out there on the front lines engaging with some of these big questions around sexuality, transgenderism, all these big kind of cultural questions. Well, I think about the advice that he would that he would have given to me, which is to remember that in your service for the Lord, you need to be rooted in your love for the Lord and primarily in his love toward you. Um, as I've started this center, one of the things that my friend and colleague Ivan Mesa has reminded me is the cent- central role of personal piety and prayer in Tim's life. And it's just, um, we, we actually had scheduled a prayer meeting for our fellows with the Keller Center, and it happened to have been scheduled weeks earlier, but for the moment, right after I learned that he had died. And the only thing we could think appropriate to do <laughs> to honor his memory and his legacy was to pray together to crowd in prayer. And I think in his last three years, that kept that's what kept coming back. In fact, I heard from somebody who had talked with him um, shortly before his death, and, and his response was, you got to read my prayer book, <laughs> my book on prayer. I mean, it, you know, nobody, not enough people are reading that book. It wasn't because he needed some sort of book sales. It was because at the end of his life, he's recognizing even more how important prayer is. So he would say, if you're going to engage in this work of cultural apologetics, it's got to start with prayer. Um, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you do not have the love of Christ that comes through that intimacy with him, then it's not worth anything. Um, at least that's what I'm reflecting on from him in these days. Colin, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson, and as always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for a free ebook. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.